evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The United States Constitution requires a census of the American population every 10 years. Therefore, and for many reasons, getting an accurate count of the United States population is important each decade. An accurate count of the United States population is used to determine how many U.S. representatives a state will receive and the amount of federal funds which is to be provided to each state for the large number of federally mandated programs. The more people that reside in a state determines how many congressional representatives that state will have in Congress. Census data is also used to draw congressional and state legislative districts. In light of the mobility of the American population, it is critical that the census is regularly taken and that the result represents an accurate count in each state. Tonight, we're going to talk with two experts who will educate us about the census and discuss why you should participate. Our guests are Stacy Carlos, who is the executive director of the North Carolina Counts Coalition. She began working with the coalition in August 2017 and is directing North Carolina's efforts for a complete, fair, and accurate 2020 census count in North Carolina. Also joining us is Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of the Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Official Education Fund. The Nalio Education Fund is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes Latino participation in the political process. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So first, we're going to have each one of you talk about your organizations, what it does, and how you became interested in the census question. Sure. So I'll start. This is uh, Stacy Carlos, uh, Executive Director of NC Counts Coalition. Um, and our organization was formed specifically to achieve or to support achievement of a complete and accurate 2020 census count for North Carolina. We were actually established by a group of philanthropists in North Carolina who saw the state of the census and were concerned in regards to what would happen in North Carolina um, and thought that the effort would be necessary to make sure that historically undercounted communities uh, were accurately uh, enumerated for 2020. So we're a fairly new organization, but uh, we've done a lot in the past three, well, two years. And uh, really, we serve as a hub for cross-sector facilitation, meaning that we work with all stakeholders across the state for the 2020 census. Uh, primarily, we serve nonprofit organizations, and we are the hub for a national campaign called Get Out the Count, which we refer to as GOTC. Um, a lot of grassroots and nonprofit organizations work on uh, GOTV, which is Get Out the Vote, which is very similar to GOTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, grassroots organizing, uh, peer-to-peer engagement for 2020 census participation. So through that program, we provide nonprofit organizations with resources that they need to be effective 
uh, in amplifying the need for participation for the 2020 census and in mobilizing. Um, I came into this work surprisingly. I was looking for a break from practicing law and uh, I really wanted to make a difference and and I wanted to do more uh, than just working in the courtroom. And so my passion for my community and for change and for the political process and civil rights, uh, when I saw the census and the position open, I thought this would be a really great fit where I could utilize uh, my passion for civil rights and the law, as well as my passion for advocacy and community engagement and merge the two together. And it's been it's been a fun ride. All right. And we should mention that you are a proud graduate of the NCCU School of Law. Yes, I am. Legal Eagle. <laughs> All right. And always a delight having you having you back. Thank you. So, Juliana, so tell us about your organization and how you became involved. Yes. So, first of all, starting out saying how lucky are we that a NCCU grad decided to step into the census work and lead. It's been a pleasure to work with Stacy the last couple of years and I'm confident that if we have a good and accurate count in North Carolina next year, in large part, it's because of Stacey's work and NC Counts Coalition work. So consider myself lucky and privileged to be able to do this work every day along Stacey and many of her of our peers. Um, so Naleo Educational Fund is a 501c3 organization, and it was really created by Congressman Edward Royball, who represented um, a heavily Latino district in LA. And he created it recognizing that there was a need for Latino elected officials, the Latino community to come together and discuss democratic issues um, and access to democracy pieces that were not in place for Latinos. Um, We still continue that fight, and the organization is really his vision. And what we do is work towards the full participation of Latinos in the American political process. And day-to-day, what that means for me is that I'm focused on naturalization, So making sure that Latinos that are eligible to become U.S. citizens are able to do so. And a lot of that work centers around workshops and activities, events we host for Latinos to have access to legal service providers or attorneys that otherwise they wouldn't be able to have access to. Second, um, voter engagement. So everything having to do with making sure Latinos are able to vote. So if you're a U.S. citizen, making sure that you're registered to vote. Um, And once you're eligible and registered to vote, that you get out the vote. Um, And a big piece of our work is really around protecting the vote so that Latinos that are eligible, registered to vote, are able to do so without any challenges or obstacles on Election Day. And then the third bucket of work, which is um, what's brought me work with the NC Counts Coalition, is census. And we really started to do this work shortly after the 2016 election, we pivoted full-on census mode. And it's about getting um, very similar to the work NC Counts does, making sure Latinos get counted and our community understands why it's important to participate in the census. Um, personally, I came through this work. I'm an immigrant to this country, a naturalized citizen. Very early in my post-college career, realized that private the private sector wasn't for me, so I pivoted to nonprofit in the public sector. And Civic engagement stood out as a passion of mine and something that really um, felt like I was giving back to my community while serving it, while also developing professionally. Um, So, yeah, I've been fortunate. We've been with Naleo here in North Carolina since late 2012 doing this work. Let me just ask, uh, you know, with with respect to the the census, and and, uh, well, let me further commend both of you for all the work that you do. Uh, It's uh, very uh, important. And uh, we are now up to the midnight hour uh, with respect to the beginning of the census count. Uh, 
So can you talk to me a little bit about uh, who is to be counted in the census and why? Sure. So uh, the census is the most inclusive and the largest peacetime operation in the United States. And every individual uh, that is breathing on April 1st of 2020 should be counted. That means if a baby is born at 1201 (laughs) on April 1st, they should be counted in the census, regardless uh, of citizenship status age or, or anything. Everyone counts. And what, what is the purpose of the, uh, of the counting? So most of it is uh, for political power, fair representation. So, of course, going back to our uh, congressional representation, which North Carolina is expected to pick up a seat, um, as well as when we talk about redistricting, uh, which is always a hot topic in our state. Uh, redistricting will be based off of this data, uh, and that's at both the federal level as well as the local level. Um, And then, of course, we have the federal funds that flow into our community, which a recent study by George Washington University shows it is... 1.5 trillion. They just revised the figure. So originally it was believed to be more than 880 billion. And that's a substantial increase in regards to what that federal pot looks like for allocation of funding. And most of this funding goes towards health care programs, so Medicaid uh, and Medicare, but it also goes towards social welfare programs uh, such as um, federal housing uh, vouchers for for housing assistance, uh, your lunch programs, um, SNAP. So, or your highway infrastructure programs, the roads that we drive on day in and day out, a lot of these programs are affected uh, by the count and the funds that flow into our community. Um, and then also, this data is actually utilized um, in litigation for to make sure that we could actually enforce um, civil rights laws. So, uh, and community planning. So, making sure that our communities have the resources that they need to be vibrant. Both of your organizations, they are, in terms of this emphasis, well, Stacey, your organization is, is relatively new. And Juliana, your, this is a relatively new kind of emphasis in focusing on the census. So what is it about this moment in time that has led to, I guess, greater education and, and more of a push to make sure that people participate in the census count? Yeah, I think there's several factors in play that make this a very unique and some would say the most challenging census we'll ever have. Um, The biggest piece is that the Census Bureau was mandated to conduct the 2020 census at a lower cost per household than they did in 2010. So they're asked to do a job 10 years later at a lower cost per household, which has led the Census Bureau to make decisions that significantly change the way we'll participate. And we can dive that into that a little bit deeper But really what it means is that the biggest change is that most of us will be asked to participate online. And we know that many of our communities still lack that Internet access needed or have, you know, that digital um, gap in knowledge that won't allow them to complete their census questionnaire. I think that's that makes it incredibly unique. That mandate to conduct the census at a lower cost per household has also led to less staff being hired by the Census Bureau, less resources for community partners. So a lot of the swag that has traditionally been a part of census engagement 
there's some out there, but it's going to be significantly less. So imagine the 2010 census at a lower scale on the Bureau's behalf, and that including that participation online piece. So I think that has required, unfortunately, a lot of groups to step up, right? In many ways, our day-to-day is filling in these gaps that the Census Bureau has. And how do we, although it's not our role, the government should be doing this work, how do we leverage this, the resources we have to, to support the Bureau in their effort in ensuring a full and accurate count? And I would say the second factor that some would say existed in 2010 but has been heightened is just general fear. You know, we're operating in a political environment that's unique that we haven't been through maybe in the last couple of decades. And so our communities are fearful in general about trusting government. Trusting government is at an all-time low. Confidence around confidentiality, the fact that a lot of this will be online. You know, we've been hearing a lot about concerns about hacking or other people, you know, bad actors accessing that information. So I would say, um, and Stacey, feel free to chime in, that those two things have really make it a unique environment. And within within the community, how that affects, you know, immigrants community, the black community, even more, right, than other communities. And, and it's important to highlight that, you know, Latinos, immigrants, blacks have already been traditionally undercounted. So in a way, we've never been counted as we should. And so these additional challenges place an additional burden. Can I just follow up with, with a question on, on that? Uh, who benefits if segments of the population is not counted in the census? Yeah, that's a great question. I would gar- argue that none of us benefits, right? Um, Stacy outlined what it means for local resources, what it means for political representation. So I would argue that we all benefit from getting counted. What we've seen come up, though, is that there's been attempts to change the census questionnaire, change the way the census is operated with the intention of making sure that America, there's a prominent race and other races aren't included or counted. Um, So bad actors are out there that want to manipulate the final count. um, But I'm, I'm confident in that. The better the count, the more everyone, regardless of race, age, community in which you reside, you'll benefit from it. And then I look at it also as uh, the same way that we live in gerrymandered districts as a way to maintain political power or to suppress the voice um, of our minority communities. That's the same thing census um, would do pretty much, you know, if folks are not counted. Uh, it politically suppresses the voice of an entire community. Now, Juliana, you mentioned that um, there was, uh, well, I think kind of hinted about the inclusion of the citizenship question, and I think that feeds into your point about the view of some about the purpose of the citizenship or about the census. Can you talk a little bit about the efforts on the part of the administration, this current administration, to include the citizenship question on the census. We've got a recent Supreme Court decision, but just talk to us a little bit about that case. Yeah, so in late, in December 2017, we heard that the administration was interested in adding the citizenship question. And the first it came, the first way it came to light was that it was a Department of Justice request to the Department of Commerce, which oversees the Census Bureau, And the justification of it was that the Department of Justice needed this information 
for the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. So when this first came to light, all of us that do voter engagement work or are up to speed in what's happening in the voting rights space were surprised because this administration, voting rights, the Voting Rights Act has not been a priority, right? And so that came to light December of 2017. We knew that the Secretary of Commerce would have to make a decision about whether this question would be added but late March 2018. Because of the timeline, the Secretary of Commerce actually has to submit a final set of questions to Congress by the end of March. So we were all, you know, that December through March periods, we were all kind of in pins and needles. The Secretary of Commerce actually outreached to our CEO, among other community leaders, to get, in, to, to get input on how we felt about this. Come to light, we fast forward to late March 2018, we hear that the Secretary of Commerce is formally is is adding this question or formally requesting that this question be included in the census questionnaire. And I would say um, for Stacy and many of us that were doing this work, we were kind of in rapid response mode. How do we fight back? Because we know that the addition of that question would have prevented people from participating and would have had a negative impact on community on getting on getting everyone counted. So since then, um, you know, lawsuits, the, the night the announcement was announced, there was a lawsuit. California was the first one to sue. Lawsuits popped up across the nation. North Carolina was actually a plaintiff in one of these lawsuits, which led to the case ultimately making it to the Supreme Court. Um, what was interesting is that up to that point, I think we, were, we weren't feeling terribly optimistic about the outcome. You know, it's always hard to know how the Supreme Court is going to rule on something. Right before the Supreme Court really made a decision on this case, there's a North Carolina connection. There's always a North Carolina <laughs> connection. Evidence through the death of, an, of a political operative here in North Carolina, his daughter uncovered some files that were shared with a local community group that was partnering with the same attorneys that were fighting the addition of the citizenship question. And what that brought to light, April, to your point, that was a long-winded way to get to your question, was the true intentions behind the addition of the citizenship question. The, the, the arguments that had been shared up to that point made no sense when we know, even Census Bureau staff said the addition of this question would have a negative impact on participation. And what that evidence brought to light was, um, to Stacey's point, the link to redistricting, how there's intentions or a movement to do redistricting only based on the number of citizens that reside in a state. Um, you know, that's it's the Supreme Court has ruled otherwise. And there's currently a case out of Alabama that's trying to fight this. But we we feel that an accurate count is important because it leads to a true portrait of our nation and also because it leads to actual like accurate redistricting and ac actual representation, which is where everyone that resides in a state gets counted and that data is used for redistricting and other purposes. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement with the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Educational Fund, and Stacy Carlos, the Executive Director for NC Counts Coalition. We're going to be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm the 
Anastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Every year, millions of Americans in the United States are victims of scams in the real and virtual world. A scam is a fraudulent act or operation towards another that results in a wrongful financial or personal gain. The North Carolina Department of Justice handles more than 20,000 reported consumer scams every year and have successfully helped North Carolina residents recover more than $100 million in losses. Top consumer scams include credit card fraud, phone or utilities fraud, loan or lease fraud, and employment or tax-related fraud. Here are a few tips consumers may use to protect themselves against potential fraudulent transactions. First, if an offer sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Second, always read contracts carefully before you sign them and make sure all written documents match what you've been promised. Never sign a document that you don't understand or that has blanks to be filled in later. Third, be cautious and avoid anyone who demands an upfront fee for a prize such as lottery winnings. And lastly, never give out your social security, credit card, or bank account number or any other personal information to anyone you don't know who contacts you. If you think you've been the victim of a scam, more information is at 919-716-6000 and www.ncdoj.gov. Virtual Justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Stacy Carlos, the executive director of the NC Counts Coalition, and Juliana Cabrales, Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Educational Fund. Juliana, right before the break, you were sharing with us the Commerce v. New York Supreme Court decision that focused on the Department of Commerce's attempt to include the citizenship question on the census. And as you noted, the Supreme Court reached the conclusion that the citizenship question could not be included on this particular census because there was not the, the agency, the Department of Commerce had not provided um, sufficient justification. But the Supreme Court did not rule out the inclusion of the citizenship question on future censuses. So after the 2020 census, we'll have another census in 2030. And is it possible that we could in the future see the citizenship question on the census? Yeah, it's entirely possible. As you stated, April, um, the Supreme Court ruled on the justification for adding the question, but not necessarily didn't say oh, this can't be added in the future. I think it was also the timing of it was crucial because the Bureau had a set deadline at which they needed to start printing census questionnaires. So even though the Supreme Court ruling came down, the administration still tried to fight back against the ruling because the Supreme Court left that door open. But there was a tight deadline and the Bureau needed to go to print. It's such a big printing job that they needed to start by July 1st. Um, So yeah, that is entirely possible. We know that the administration's response, President Trump issued an executive order on July 11th, so shortly after the decision, saying that there was a need for agencies to share citizenship data as a way to supplement, right, the information he hoped to get through the census. So as an org, we're still monitoring that. 
But to your point, I think it's crucial that we all, once 2020 passes, not lose sight, right, of this fight and what it could mean in the future for our constituencies and organizations. Let me, uh, you know, you, you talked about the purpose or purposes of the uh, census, and that is to determine uh, the uh, representation uh, in uh, Congress uh, at the state level, also to determine uh, the uh, distribution of funds from the federal treasury back into the uh, states, and that is allocated in large part based on the number of people who are in uh, each state. My question is with respect to the states. Isn't it in their interest to ensure that every individual living in that state is counted because there are significant economic and political advantages per state by ensuring uh, that count? And then what is it that the states are doing to add to the accuracy or the fullness of the count? That's a great question. Um, So you're absolutely right. It benefits the state in every way. And um, it's literally leaving money on the table if we do not achieve a complete and accurate count. Uh, Governments are responsible for their citizens whether or not they take that funding. That funding is available. Um, It's just a matter as to what that fair share is and what the community um, actually gets from, um, you know, achieving a, a good count. So the state, as well as local communities, have everything to benefit from a complete and accurate count. In regards to what are states doing, a lot of states are actually creating complete count committees, or as North Carolina did, uh, Governor Cooper established a complete count commission in October. I believe it was October of last year. Uh, And it has about 50 individuals from across the state who are strategizing and advising the governor on what needs to happen for Uh, for us to achieve a complete and accurate count. The problem is, is that North Carolina has a complete count commission, but the commission has no funding. Now, there are, I believe I read um, a newspaper article about two days ago that we have 26 states that have established complete count committees, state state level um, by governor, executive order, complete count committees or commissions that have allocated funding to actually support Uh, the work on the ground to achieve a complete and accurate count. North Carolina, unfortunately, is one of, I want to say four, um, that has not provided any funding to actually support the count. So they have a commission, but no money for the commission to work with. So how is the commission supposed to then do their job? And and so I guess that's the, the one question. The other question is, why is there no funding for this commission? That's another good question. Um, so Governor Cooper actually requested $1.5 million, um, and it was taken out of the House budget last year. An amendment was made by Representative uh, Pricey Harrison, I believe, which uh, went back into um, the budget, and it passed the House. It got to the Senate, and that was 750000 So it still wasn't the full $1.5, um, and seven hundred and fifty, honestly, It's not much to work off of, but it's better than nothing. Uh, It got to the Senate, and we received notice that it was taken out of that budget. Um, Of course, the budget never passed, so it's just 
in limbo as of right now. Uh, but we're not exactly sure as to why the funding did not go through, um, which is really unfortunate because, like you said, how are they supposed to get this work done? At this point, North Carolina, the NC Counts Coalition is funding a substantial part of the census outreach efforts throughout the state of North Carolina. Now, you also said that uh, the a large part of the count is to be conducted over the uh, Internet. Uh, can you kind of explain how that count is supposed uh, to occur? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware that uh, there are a few people who have Internet connections, uh, that there are a lot of people who don't have Internet connections, that there are people who are homeless, uh, who are uh, economically challenged and don't have Internet uh, connections. So can you describe exactly how that process is supposed to work? And then if there are contingency plans that's directed toward identifying those people who aren't uh, capable of handling this over the Internet? Sure. So what will happen different with this census um, as compared to the prior census operation is instead of households receiving an actual census questionnaire, they will receive an invitation to respond. And those invitations are slated to begin somewhere between March 12th or the week of uh, March 23rd. And once those invitations go out, uh, residents can, you know, they can begin completing their census either online or they can call this U.S. Census Bureau and take it over the phone with uh, a bureau representative, or they could call and request that an actual form, a questionnaire, be mailed to their home, um, and then they can return it the traditional way. Uh, now, Internet will be the primary push, uh, again, to cut back on cost. So for the first three attempts, three to four attempts, it will most likely be an invitation with the reminder, hey, don't forget to take the census. Um, if the resident does not respond within those first uh, two to three attempts, uh, next will be an actual questionnaire that will be dropped off at their house. And they might get that questionnaire um, twice before enumerators are deployed to begin knocking on doors um, to uh, maximize census participation. And in regards to the digital divide, the U.S. Census Bureau actually just released their map, I think last week on the 18th, uh, that will actually show where uh, throughout the country, but of course specifically looking at North Carolina, which households will receive the invitation to respond versus um, an actual questionnaire. Because some residents that they have said, hey, you know, they may not have Internet access, broadband Internet access. Uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to provide them with the actual questionnaire as opposed to the invitation to respond. Yeah, and I think on our end, um, or from from the Latino perspective, that questionnaire. So, eighty percent of us will be invited. Will receive that invitation. Go to a website. It'll have a like a twelve-digit unique code that you'll enter, and it should auto-populate with your home address. And then you'll fill it out. And then 20% of the population will get that in that paper questionnaire on that first touch. That questionnaire um, is available in English and then Spanish and English. So those are the only languages it's available on. And the map Stacy referenced, if you actually look at it, it'll show you by census tract 
who's set to receive that English um, questionnaire on that first touch versus a bilingual Spanish and English. So a lot of the work that we'll be doing now that we have that information and we have a sense as to who will receive what in North Carolina, we'll strategize with our partners to see how we touch folks differently. Um, what we're hearing a lot from the Latino community is hesitant about participating online, but I might want to do that. Paper questionnaire feels like the safest, best fit for me and my family. And we definitely don't want someone coming to our door because, as Stacey mentioned, there's a timeline and a certain number of touches. But if you don't respond, eventually you'll roll into this category. Well, you'll get an enumerator at your door. So I think a lot of the messaging we're, we're figuring out and our approach to the work is how do we let folks know that there's options before they someone comes to their door? Um, and even when someone comes to your door, you can just let that person know, hey, Yes, I'm sorry I haven't filled it out. I'll go do it online now. Like the online option will still be there. But we really want to make sure not only that the community understands why it's important to participate, but understand their options and understand that there's confidentiality protections and that they can um, participate and feel confident that their information is safe. Yeah. But what, what if I'm a prisoner? What if I'm a college student? What if I'm homeless? What if I'm uh, between homes? I'm, 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 I'm moving? Uh, and I don't show up in traditional registrars. Are, are there plans that would uh, help to identify exactly who those individuals are and then uh, a methodology by which to ensure that those populations are included in the count? Sure. So a lot of those populations um, that you referred to are considered group quarters for the Census Bureau. So, for example, college students that live on campus in a dormitory, they will not be responsible for counting themselves. Uh, the college or the university will work directly with the U.S. Census Bureau and provide them with that count to make sure that they're counted uh, there in that community. The same thing with uh, military, those who are, you know, stationed. Uh, the military will count them. Now, if they don't live on base, if they live off base, which is huge for a lot of our North Carolina communities, uh, those communities still need to make sure that they participate in the census on their own, but they need to be counted here in North Carolina. Um, even if somebody is deployed or away, they still count here um, at their home base. Uh, in regards to the homeless population, uh, there will actually be a special enumeration that will take place about three days prior to um, actual census day, I believe, uh, March 30th. So folks who are in shelters, uh, they will go out into the community and try to enumerate at hours that folks, you know, tend to go in and out of shelters, as well as March 31st. Um, they'll go to soup kitchens and mobile food vans. And April 1st, it will be people in non-sheltered outdoor locations, such as tent encampments and on the streets. So there is an entire operation that the Census Bureau will work with community um, leaders to determine where the homeless population um, most typically is in, you know, in local communities. And they'll go out and they'll make efforts to enumerate them prior to the actual census day. So April 1st, 2020 is Census Day, but what's the window in which this information will be gathered? So we know it'll be, you know, prior to that, that you'll be getting your invitations. Once you hit April 1st, 2020, is it like we're done or? 
<laughs> no, so the invitations will start going out around March 23rd is what we're hearing, and they'll be staggered. So folks won't all receive an invitation, um, you know, but they'll start trickling in. April 1st is like only for um, operational, like I call it our Super Bowl, right? So it's like it's the big showdown. Um but after that, you could continue to self-respond all the way up until the end of April. They'll start sending enumerators out um, in about May. And I haven't received an exact cutout day. Julian, maybe you have a better idea of this. It's my understanding that the enumeration will most likely go until um, the end of June, maybe early July. Yeah, that's what we've heard recently, too. And we've actually um, just heard that the self-response option online will be available through that enumerator phase. So in a way, our message needs to be, hey, respond by April 30th if you don't want someone coming to your door. But even if someone comes to your door post-April 1st, sorry, in May, you can still respond. Um, Yeah, and I believe that the operations they think will be absolutely done in July of 2020. So it's quite quite a big period of time, and it's a big effort by our government. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about the upcoming 2020 census. And our guests in the studio are Stacey Carlos, Executive Director of the NC Counts Coalition, and Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement of the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Educational Fund, We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the 2020 census, which is coming up in April. And we have with us in the studio Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Education Fund. And we have Stacy Carlos, Executive Director of the NC Counts Coalition. And right before the break, Juliana, you were talking about messaging and and how it is that it is most effective to communicate information to people to make sure that they know to vote. Um, Can you talk about some of the specific outreach that that you do? And then Stacey will have you talk about your organization, the specific types of outreach that you do to try and encourage people to participate. Yeah, so we, we've kind of embarked on an educational phase, so simply sharing with community members general information about the census, letting them know that it's coming. The real um, mobilization piece of the work, um, you know, we've raised awareness during the last couple of months, and we'll continue to do so through the end of the year. Then our mobilization phase will really come into play in February when we start telling individuals, watch out for your mail, you might be getting this in the next month or so, um, depending on the timeline. And so once we know, once we're in that phase where we know folks are getting that mailer, we'll just want to be highlighting, right, and letting them know through community events, through media outlets, this is in the mail, the time to participate is now. So it's it's kind of a different, different phases because right now it's too early to mobilize folks to take action. But what we're, do, what we're doing along with the NC Counts Coalition is building that infrastructure to make sure that we can take action once we're ready to mobilize. 
And NC Count's approach is very similar in regards to the timeline. I would say our biggest outreach effort is our regranting program. Um, so through our Get Out the Count program, we work with organizations across the state. Uh, it's more than 125 nonprofit 501c3s. Uh, who have said that they want to make census a priority. And so what we do is um, after we identify nonprofit organizations located in communities that we are going to do outreach in, we want to provide them with the resources uh, so that they could expand their capacity to actually be able to do the work. And so our target counties right now are Anson, Bertie, Cumberland, Duplin, Durham, Edgecombe, Guilford, Halifax, Hoke, Mecklenburg, Northampton, Robeson, Robeson, Sampson, Scotland, and Vance. Um, it's about 1.2 million individuals that we're trying to touch and move to actual census participation. And so we did an RFP process. Uh, our first round was $250,000, which we'll be regranting uh, in the next within the next month, where organizations tell us what they want to do for outreach. So we let them tell us what works best based off of their experience within the communities that they serve and that we are trying to reach. Um, and then we provide them with granting so that they could actually do that outreach. So that brings in community participation in identifying people who might have fallen through the gaps. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and most of the organizations we work with are already considered what we call trusted messengers, folks who have um, uh, relationships with their communities and they can engage in one-on-one -on -one contact um, to actually make sure that folks receive the information in regards to the census. Now, the, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, English and Spanish uh, uh, languages will be used in this uh, process. We're at a time that... Uh, the United States is probably more diverse than ever before in its history. What about other language minorities and efforts uh, to reach out uh, to them in the educational and mobilization uh, phase of the work to ensure that uh, they are accurately counted as well? Yeah, so part of the work we're doing as a as a coalition and on the ground is just making sure that the right partners are at the table and the, that the right languages and needs are being addressed. That's in tandem with what the Census Bureau is offering for language assistance. So since Stacy mentioned that the phone will be a way that individuals can complete their, their census questionnaire, the Bureau is going to provide that assistance in English in 12 non-English languages, and that includes Spanish, Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean, the top languages they've identified as being present in the United States. Those same 12 languages will be available online for individuals that complete that census questionnaire. And then there's additional languages that will have um, a language glossary, an ID card, language guides, which includes video and print that will be available for, for community members and groups doing this work. So I think as, as organizations, what we're doing is getting a better understanding of what the Bureau will have available. And if there's a need to supplement that, we'll step in and identify you know, how we can provide those translation or interpretation services. Um, I think to Stacey's point, the NC Counts is a very ambitious plan, but there's so much work to do. And, you know, this is a, a count of everyone that resides in North Carolina. So the more, the better. And the more hands on deck, um, the better result we'll get in, in a full count. Now, if someone wanted to see what questions are going to be asked on the census, 
is there a way to to take a look at that now? Because I would assume that part of the concern, and Juliana, you mentioned uh, the confidentiality and privacy issues that, that might be particularly of concern to the Latino community. But if someone wanted to know what questions would be asked in advance of filling it out, could, can people take a look right now? They can. So the actual census questionnaire is available on the U.S. Census Bureau's website. Um, I'm not exactly sure where on their website it's housed, but it's also on NC Counts Coalition's website under resources. Uh, So folks can take a look and see the questions. I believe it's 10 questions. They say 10 questions, 10 minutes is what they said in 2010. Um, Juliana, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think um, just really quickly, what what we can share with folks is that the census questionnaire will ask about the number of people living or staying in the house, apartment or mobile home, you know, your residential unit, whether it's a residence, it's a house, apartment or mobile home. It will ask for telephone number, sex, age, date of birth, Hispanic origin, there's a race question, and then relationship of persons in the household, including whether, you know, you're, you're including your child, your same-sex partner, your um, spouse, whatever that might be, they ask you to designate that option. Um, when we talk about this, I think it's really important to highlight what the census questionnaire will not ask, and that includes citizenship status, which we talked about, immigration status, no question on social security, whether you use public benefits, whether you have a criminal background or convictions, Certainly no information about like a payment or a bank account. And the reason we like to highlight that is because we know there's bad actors that might try to reach out our elderly population, which is has traditionally been victims of scams. So that's a distinction that as we get closer, we'll make sure people know this is what you should respond to and this is what you should not. And this is what the actual questionnaire looks like. And, you know, don't take a phone call from someone telling you they're the Census Bureau when they really are not going to be calling you. And that's a, a good point and, and one that I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, but that this opens the door for people who are scamming and trying to get this information. Are you finding that folks are, if, as far as fear about the census, that, that you providing this information is making them feel more confident about participating and, and alleviating fears that, that might exist? I think so. We've already received a good amount of call um, from government organizations saying, hey, someone called and said they knocked on their door and they were with the Census Bureau. And in some cases, it has been legit, um, where it really was, you know, the Census Bureau, they do all types of surveys. So it might have been the American Community Survey. Um, It could have been address canvassing. It could have been a number of things. And the first question we always ask is, did they have a badge, right? So I always say, if they don't show you a badge that says U.S. Census Bureau, then we have concerns. But if they had a badge, then they're probably authorized and they're legit. Um, But we have also seen some instances of misinformation already circulating online with rumors in regards to folks knocking on doors, asking for ID or telling you to have your ID to prepare for the 2020 census. So there's a lot of concern around that. I think that um, once we speak with folks and we tell them that the information is protected by Title 13, it does um, make them feel a little bit more comfortable. And I always throw in there that it has actually been challenged before, and they've lost pretty much every time in regards to releasing that information for other reasons. Um, and I think that makes folks feel a little bit more secure as well. What information would you can you provide uh, to people who are interested in being employed as enumerators or as uh, trusted uh, adjuncts in the community uh, to uh, complete the uh, census? 
Sure. So the Census Bureau is doing a huge hiring operation right now. I believe the number, I think it's half a million applicants that they are trying to gather uh, for these enumerator positions, as well as they need to fill uh, positions in field offices. Uh, so if you visit their website, which I believe is 2020census.gov, there is a link on there for employment. Um, there's also a link on our website, nccensus.org. At the top, you'll see employment opportunities, and there's a link that will take you directly to the 2020 Census hiring website. Uh, we encourage folks to apply. I believe that they just increased the pay rate. Um, so it's like fourteen sixty, I want to say, an hour, and it goes up to like $25 an hour. It just depends on where you are located, what community you're working in. And for enumerators, it is my understanding that after attending a two-day training, the schedule is flexible and you just have to work at least 20 hours a week. Uh, so these are great jobs, um, you know, for college students. Um, I'm trying to get my mom to apply as an enumerator because she keeps asking me for a census job. So I was like, hey, mom, you could be an, enum an enumerator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a little bit of extra income. And it's really great for folks who like to engage with folks in their community. We want people who... Um, look like us and talk like us to be knocking on doors to encourage participation. And Juliana, as far as the Latino community, I, I would assume it's especially important to have uh, people who are enumerators who can speak the language. Um, is that one of the reasons why you encourage folks in your community to apply as well? Yeah, without a doubt, we're working closely with the Bureau to make sure that these job opportunities are out there and that community members know what the requirements are. It's You can only apply online, which tying it to the bigger, the earlier question can be a challenge, but a lot, the Bureau has partnered with a lot of computer labs and local communities to offer that assistance in applying and making sure that folks can walk through the process. So, yeah, it's a big piece. Um, right now, we're also waiting to hear from the Bureau of Final Guidance. As of right now, it's only available to U.S. citizens. We hope that they'll extend those opportunities to other folk, uh, individuals that are authorized to work in the U.S. We think that's crucial in order to get um, Census Bureau employees that look like us and tech like us, like Stacy mentioned. Uh, but, yeah, it's crucial that our communities have are contacted or reached out to by people that belong to those communities. And you know, who's better at mobilizing or getting com communities to participate in something than other community members, right? So one of the questions that I had was, there's one person in the household that will fill out the census for the entire household. Do you have any advice for the person who is kind of taking that responsibility? And, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm asking this question is, I went to a, a powwow, actually, uh, that we had recently at North Carolina Central, and there was discussion about the census and how the person who fills out the census in terms of identifying the household, that is how the household is counted. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Sure. So I always say it's self-identification. So I actually think of it as a way of empowerment in regards to how I identify myself instead of somebody else identifying me. Um, and so the individual in the household it's completely up to them as to how they identify individuals in the household. Um, Juliana, do you want to? Yeah, so I think it's sometimes as, as good as it is to have someone participate in the census, right? We also want to make sure they understand as you're filling it out as head of household, you're responsible for counting everyone in that household, whether it be a child, whether it be someone that you're renting a room out to, 
whether it be a family member that's maybe in a transitional phase and is living with you. So first of all, realizing who lives in your household, who is living in your household on April 1st and making sure that they're included. We've seen this come up um, specifically because we saw in 2010 an undercount of very young children. So individuals, head of households, were filling out their census questionnaire for reasons we don't know, leaving off very young children. So that would be my first advice. Just make sure you count everyone that's residing in your household, even if it's not family members. I think the second thing, to Stacy's point, there's a question about Hispanic origin and race. And that question um, can be confusing for specific communities. And it's a big concern for Latinos. And it also has been a big concern for the Middle Eastern North African community. Because the Hispanic origin race very clearly states, are you Hispanic? Do you consider yourself Hispanic or Latino? Yes or no. So that's one that oftentimes folks can answer easily, right? But the race question, the categories that are offered under race, Latinos and Middle, Astri- Middle, Afri- Mi- sorry, Middle Eastern and North African folks often don't see themselves reflected because it offers white, black, American Indian, lists some countries of Asian Pacific Islander origin, and then offers a category for other. And so that's where I think um, the sense, completing the census questionnaire can really be a family exercise and making sure that you're including folks as they identify themselves. That's our advice to community members. Make sure you indicate how you identify, and it would be my recommendation for folks filling out the census questionnaire at their homes. And so for each member of the household, all of those questions that you had mentioned before, each person in the household will be able to select an answer to those questions. That's correct. So, Juliana, you mentioned that undercounts and young children oftentimes are undercounted. And, Stacy, you mentioned when you were talking about the creation of your organization that it was designed to address kind of historical groups that were being undercounted. Why is it, and I know we've kind of touched upon some of the reasons, but can you talk a little bit more about why it is that minority communities find as a group that they are undercounted when it comes to the census? Sure. It could be um, a lot of different reasons. Uh, Some of it is just uh, fear of the government. Why is the government in my house? Why do they want to know how many people live here? Why do they want to know, um, you know, the names of individuals? Some of it is misinformation. So especially with our immigrant community, whether documented or undocumented, even folks who, you know, are documented that are here, they just never realize that, hey, I'm supposed to be counted in the census as well, because this is my permanent residence. Um, Sometimes it could, sometimes it could be uh, language barriers. So again, going back to, um, you know, the form being provided in Spanish and English, Um, some misinterpretation there. Um, And then I also think that a lot of times we have populations that are overcounted, you know, as opposed to undercounted. And in those instances, you know, for North Carolina especially, it tends to be college students um, where a parent is counting their child at home, but then the university is also counting the child on campus. Um, So a lot of it, I just think, is the the education aspect, as well as overcoming uh, fear of the government. All right. We have just a a few minutes left, but I wanted each of you to be able to tell our listeners how they can reach your organization if they have any questions or they want to attend some of your educational seminars. 
Sure. So if you visit us online, www.nccensus.org, you could join the coalition. And once you join, you will receive all of our email updates, as well as there's a contact us button on there. And you could ask us questions and see how you could be more involved. Perfect. And to reach us at Naleo, you can visit our website, Naleo, that's N-A-L-E-O dot O-R-G. And then our census campaign website is Agase Contar, which is H-A-G-A-S-E-C-O-N-T-A-R dot O-R-G. So if you visit both of those websites, you can have access to the organization or access to materials and resources you can use to engage your community members. All right. And we would strongly encourage you all to do so, to learn more about the census, encourage your friends, your family, your community. This is vitally important. And we can't thank both of you enough for, again, being on the show and sharing this vital information. Stacey Carlos, who is the executive director of NC Counts Coalition, and Juliana Cabrales, who is the Mid-Atlantic Director of Civic Engagement for the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Educational Fund. And we, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you got something out of it. We are sure that you have. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.